take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to welcome everybody again this morning for being here. We're grateful for our visitors. Please make out a visitor's card if you have not already and let us know that um, let us know that you were here. We appreciate very much your being here and like, would like a record of your attendance. Grateful that you've chosen to be here this morning. So important that everybody takes out a Bible. The Word of God is perfect and flawless. And we need so much to go by what it says, not by what any man says. And so again, I encourage you to take out your own Bibles and to read along as we study this morning. Before I begin, I also want to take just a moment and thank those brothers who filled in for me while I was not, not able to be here last week. I, I know that they love to serve the Lord, and I know they are committed to the Lord, and I understand that, but I also understand when you get a call on a Friday morning that it can uh, uh, be a little touch and go with some of the schedules we keep, and I appreciate the extra effort, so thank you so much. I was recently asked by one of our elders to address, please, in sermon form, the following question. If God so hates human sacrifice, and we know he does, then why did his ultimate plan include it? If God so hates human sacrifice, then why did his ultimate plan include it? And I must admit, I've never really thought about it in those terms before. Not exactly like that. And so I appreciated the question. I appreciated the challenge of looking some of this stuff up and, and trying to come up with an answer to that question. And I will tell you, the answer that I found has only increased my love and appreciation for God. And I hope as I share these thoughts this morning with you that it will do the same for you. I don't believe there is a text that comes right out and says, in those very specific terms, if God so hates human sacrifice, then why did his ultimate plan include it? Nor do I think there's a particular verse that comes right out and says, in those specific terms, the answer to the question. But I do believe that based on what a number of biblical texts do say, what they clearly say, what they concretely establish, we can make a very well-informed attempt to answer the question very, very biblically. I want to begin by examining some basic Bible truths which are very clear in Scripture. First one we will just note in passing for a reference. Child sacrifice was an evil pagan, abominable practice. We see that in places like 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 7. Not only was it a vile, abhorrent, evil, pagan practice, but it is an abominable and absolutely forbidden one as far as God is concerned. It is absolutely abominable to God and clearly forbidden as far as God is concerned. We would read from Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. Moses' instruction to the people. 
Verse 9. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations. These were vile to God. The abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. What that means is child sacrifice, children burned alive and sacrificed to false gods. That's what it means. Whenever you see that pass through the fire there. Or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. These nations which you will dispossess, they listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. God hated these things. Hated them. Including their children being burned alive as a sacrifice. Now, this is not the first time they've heard this. Leviticus 18.21, God told them as well not to do this. You see, this child sacrifice is one of the six things that the Lord hates. One of the seven things that are an abomination to him, according to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, amongst other things. The scripture tells us that children are a gift. They are a heritage or a reward from the Lord. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. The scripture also indicates that all things that God created, which would certainly include children, were meant to bring him glory. Isaiah 43, in verse 7. So therefore, is it any wonder that God says in Ezekiel chapter 16, Verses 20 through 22, the following. He says, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? Did you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? In all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth. It is amazing as we read through the scriptures how many times God can say, I absolutely hate, deplore, abhor, detest this horrible, vile thing. And yet God's own people keep on doing it. We would notice that with this particular case. Turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. Let us notice several examples. 2 Kings, beginning in chapter 16. Just a few quick examples. This is so utterly detestable to God. 2 Kings, chapter 16. Listen to what he says about it. In verses 1 through 3. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, 
the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before <coughs> children of Israel. Turn to the very next chapter, 2 Kings chapter 17, and look at verses 16 through 18. Chapter 17, verses 16 through 18. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his sight. There was none left. The tribe of Judah. <laughs> but the crazy thing is, if you read on, you see Judah does the same thing. It's just, it, it's mind-blowing. 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Look what happens here with Manasseh. Chapter 21, 1 through 3. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hebsabah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, Hezekiah his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. If you move down to me to verse 6, look what it says. He made his son pass through the fire practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, conjured spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin, by which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Hey, Doug, that's an awful lot of passages that say the same thing. Yes, it is. Because I want to prove to you because it is crucial to our point at the end. How much God absolutely detests and hates the shedding of innocent blood. In fact, if you look right here in this text, you'll see what God in his anger did because of it, or promised to do in verses 12 and 13, which I skipped right over. <coughs> Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumbed and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. <coughs> Excuse me. I was going to... I had a cough drop before I got up here, and I made sure it wasn't a button, just so you all know. <laughs> In fact, so abominable, so detestable, so deplorable, so hated by God, so unthinkable is this idea. I mean, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine 
sacrificing my own children. I can't, I cannot get my mind around that. How people could do that. But they did it over and over and over. But God finds it so unthinkable that he says in Jeremiah 32, 35, and they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this. I've always wondered about that verse. God says, it never even came into my mind that they should do this. And I'm thinking, now God knew they were going to. God knows everything. He warned against it, so he knew they were going to, but he says in that passage, it never came into my mind that they should do this. Until I figured out that the emphasis needs to be on the word should. It never entered my mind that they should do this, that it was a good thing, that there was any way to justify it. There's no way in God's mind that this should be done. There's, there's, no, there's no way to justify it. There's, no way to, it, it. there's just no justification for it. It never came into his mind that they should, that this would be part of worship, that this would be an honorable thing. It is extremely clear from all of those texts that God does indeed deplore the sacrifice of innocence, and he promises to punish those who shed their blood. Now, Having established beyond any shadow of a doubt God's hatred for the shedding of innocent blood, for child sacrifice, for human sacrifice, let's move on to the rest of the question. So then, why did his ultimate plan to save man include something that he hates so much as he does the shedding of innocent blood? Why? Once again, I'd like to remind us that there is no one verse that tells us in those specific terms. But I think if we look at the following four areas of biblical truth, four areas, we can come up with a really good biblical answer and conclusion to the question. Point number one. God is not going to take away anybody's free will. Point number one, God is not going to take away man's free will or ability to choose. Now I'm going to say something that might cause a raised eyebrow, but think about it. Think about it. Did you know that God's will is not always done? Did you know that God's will is not always going to be done? Did you know that God's will does not always win out. It doesn't. And I'm not being irreverent. But it doesn't. Let me give you a number of biblical examples that God's will is not always going to win out. God's will is not always going to be done because, and the reason why is because God doesn't take away our free will. Let me give you some examples of God's will not being done. So many times what God wants, wills, and desires to happen simply will not. Let me give you some examples. Luke chapter 7 and verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. Did God have a will for them? He wanted them to be baptized, right? That was God's will that they be baptized. 
But they did what? They rejected God's will. God's will was not done for them because they rejected it. Their free will was to choose not to do God's will. Let me give you some other examples. We know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that it is the will of God that all Christians abstain from sexual immorality. Let me ask you questions. A question. Have all Christians that have ever become Christians abstained from sexual immorality? No. Some have gone back into the world. Some have, have done things that they shouldn't have done. It's God's will that all Christians abstain from it, but that isn't always the case that they do. We know from 1 Peter 3 and verse 9 that it is God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. It says that. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will is that nobody perish. Let me ask you a question. Are people going to perish? Are people going to perish? Sure they are. You know why? Because although it's God's will that they don't, they're going to choose to reject God's will in favor of their own, and God's not going to take away their free will to reject His will. A lot of times at the end of services. Hopefully every time. Churches of Christ all across the world, America and the world. Preacher at the end of the service will invite people to come forward who have never been baptized to have their sins forgiven. Is God's will that they come to repentance? Yes. Is it God's will that they be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? Yeah, that's what it says in Acts 2. Does everybody do that every time? No, so God's will is not done for that person at that point. Finally, in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and yet we know that all men will not be saved. In fact, it will be the few as opposed to the many. And so in all of the above, we see that God will not take away our free wills, and so therefore, what he wants to happen doesn't always. His will isn't always done. You know, God often gets the blame for God for things God didn't do. For example, you know, if we have just, and I, and I pulled this in out of just a series of examples, you can fill in the blank however you want. You know, if we have a, a drunk driver that was out and totally drunk and out of their mind and they cross the center line and they kill, you know, the soccer mom and the three kids or whatever. You know, a lot of times people say, well, it was just their time. It was, you know, it was God's will. No, it wasn't. You know what God's will was? God's will was that person got drunk and they didn't get drunk in the first place. That was God's will. Does God tell us that we shouldn't get drunk? That's the will of God says, right? That's God's will. But that person that chose to reject God's will and had their own free will and made a bad choice set in motion a series of events that cause bad things to happen to good people. And sometimes that happens. It doesn't always mean it's God's will. If God had his way, that person never would have been drunk in the first place. So, point number one. God is not going to take away man's free will or ability to choose. That means that God's will is not always going to win out. Number two. God knows what man is going to do long before man ever does it and whether or not God wants it. God knows what man is going to do long before he ever does it and whether or not he wants it. 
Turn to me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31, and we will prove this. Deuteronomy 31. I'll wrap all this up in a neat little package at the end, I promise. Deuteronomy 31, look at verses 19 through 21. God knows what man is going to do long before man does it, and whether or not God agrees with it. Deuteronomy 31, beginning at verse 19. Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. They will provoke me and break my... Is that what God wanted them to do once they got there? No, it's not what God wanted them to do at all, but he knew they were going to. Look at the next verse. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. Watch this. For I know the inclination of their behavior today even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. God says, I know what they're going to do. Even though I don't agree with it, even though it's not what I want them to do, I have warned them and 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 warned them not to turn to other gods. But I'm going to tell you what. I know they're going to. And God also, he still took them into the promised land. But he said, I know the inclination, I know what they're going to do. I know how this is going to work out. God knew what man was going to do long before he did it, whether or not God wanted it. According to Psalm 139, God knows our thoughts before we think them, our words before we say them, and our deeds before we do them. Keep that in mind as we move to number three. Point number three. The ways of God and man are diametrically opposed. The ways of God and man are diametrically opposed. Opposed. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 7 through 9, you know it well. God says, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much more are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. Luke 16, 15 says, What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God and men see things differently. Man sees the sacrifice of their children as one of the most honorable things, one of the most ultimately prized and honorable things one can do to show their commitment. God says, now, turn to me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6 and I'll show you. Micah 6. 6 through 8. <coughs> Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Micah wants to know what it is, this ultimate thing that he can give God. This ultimate thing that he can give in exchange for his sin. And so he says this, Micah 6 and verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? Shall I sacrifice my child for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what God wants? This, this thing that I see is the, 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 the ultimate show of devotion. Micah says, no, that's not what your God wants. That's not what's most highly prized to him. He doesn't want you to do that. He has shown you, verse 8, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Here's what God wants from you. That you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God says, that's what I want. That shows me your devotion. That's what I want. Now, putting all of these three together, quick little synopsis, these first three things. We've seen that God hates child sacrifice. These first three points, putting them together, before moving on to the fourth and final element of our answer, Number one, God's not going to take away a person's free will. Number two, God knows what man's going to do long before he does it, whether or not God wants it done. And number three, the ways of God and man are diametrically opposed. Putting all that together. God, in his perfect judgment, knew precisely what it was going to take he knew exactly what it was going to take to cleanse something so ugly and so repulsive as our sins. God knew what it was going to take to save something as precious to him as our souls. It was going to take a perfect life and a perfect sacrifice. Because God knows what is going to happen in advance, even though not everything that happens is necessarily his will, but men have their own free wills, God knew what was going to happen ahead of time, because he knows what man's going to do. He knew ahead of time what was going to happen when the light of the world, Jesus Christ, came and was introduced into this dark world of sin, John 1, 1 through 14. God knew right down to the last thing that would be done and the last word that would be said exactly what was going to happen when his beloved son came within reach of mankind and their own free will choices. Psalm 22 proves this right down to the words that would be said. And it is that plus this final point that should make us all just love God more and fall on our faces in absolute love and adoration and appreciation for what he's done. I have a question for you to consider. What would you do? What would you do if you wanted to prove to someone that you loved them more than they could possibly imagine? If you wanted to show someone that you loved them so much that there was nothing that you would not go through for them. You know, we sing songs like, I've climbed the highest mountain, I've swim the deepest sea. Some of you probably heard the country song, No Place That Far. One of the most beautiful love songs, in my opinion, that's ever been written. There's no place too far, there's no wall too high, basically there's no sea too deep, there's no mountain, there's nothing I would not go through <coughs> to show my love for you. 
What would you do if you wanted to prove to someone you love them more than they could even begin to understand? You would give for them. Here's <coughs> what you give. You would give for them what they considered to be one of the deepest, highest, and most costly and precious sacrifices that anybody could ever give for another person. That's what you give them. And how would it mean the most? How would this gift mean the most to somebody that you're trying to convince that you love them beyond their capability to even start to imagine? How would you do that? That gift would mean the most it possibly ever could if that sacrifice you gave for them, listen closely, church, if that sacrifice you gave for them involved you enduring something that you absolutely hated for them. See where we're going with this? You really want to prove to somebody that you love them beyond anything they can imagine then your gift or your action would mean the absolute most if you were willing to go through the thing you hated the most, the thing you deplored the most, the thing that was the most grisly, ugly, awesome thing, uh, a grisly, ugly, awful thing in your mind that could possibly happen if you were willing to walk through that for them. <coughs> that would tell them how much you love them, wouldn't it? I think the answer to the question, and the point that ought to bring us all to our knees this morning even more, is point number four. God loves you and I so very, very, very much that the great God and creator of the universe was willing to go through not only the vulnerability of earthly life, but the ugliness of the most heinous kind of death imaginable, according to Galatians 3, 13 and 14, even the kind of death that he hates and deplores the most, even the kind of death that is the ugliest death to him, the death of human sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood, God would go through that because God wants you to know that he loves you so much. No price is too high. No hurt is too much. <coughs> that he would go through whatever it took, even the kind of death he hated, so that you would understand how much he loves you. He who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Even the death of the cross. That's Philippians 2, 6 through 8. But I want you to stop and think about that last phrase, even the death of the cross. And I, I want you from now on, when you read that verse, I want you to think of that ser this sermon this morning. Even the death of the cross, what does that mean? It means, yeah, what we typically think of, the ugliness of death on a cross and all the pain that goes with it, yeah. But it means more than that. 
God loves you so much that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, even the death that included the shedding of innocent blood and human sacrifice, two things that God absolutely hates, but he went through it. Even the death Things that God finds so ugly, so abhorrent, and so repulsive that he would never consider going near them if it were not for the incredible love he has for those people who are staying by them. Jesus gave up equality with God. He gave up his equality with God, his immunity to death, and his inability to be tempted. He made himself vulnerable and available to Satan's efforts, and he came to a world where he would be totally surrounded by that which he hated the most, and that is sin. And in the end, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was willing to endure death that involved personally experiencing the thing he hated most. Because he loves us that much. He did it for one simple and all-consuming reason, to show there was nothing, nothing, he would not go through for you. To me, that's the answer to the question. If God so hates human sacrifice, then why did his ultimate plan include it? It was his very hatred of it, yet his willingness to come down and endure, the, and endure the ugliest part of it personally that should underscore for all of us just how much he loves us. And that brings me to my knees spiritually. Let me close with these words, excerpted from Romans 8, 31-39. Not all of it, just part of it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us like that, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son from that kind of death that he most hated, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? As you go out into the world today, and the pain and the problems and the issues come, remember the rest of this passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The kind of love it took to come up with a plan that said, I will go through something I hate that much because I love you more. What a God. This morning, 
If you are here and you've heard about this God for the first time in these terms and his great love for you, you'd like to study more, we would love the opportunity to sit down and have a Bible study with you and just look through God's word at this incredible God and his incredible love. What he's gone through to save you from your sins, we would welcome a Bible study, certainly. As that passage says in Romans chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've got to be in Christ. God loves us and he holds out this, this opportunity for us to get into Christ where all these blessings are. But we've got to be willing to take him up on his offer. We've got to be willing to do what God said to do in order to access that grace. In order to access that forgiveness. And in order for us to get into Christ, we need to be baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 4, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. We need to be immersed into Christ so that we are in Christ where nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing we go through can separate us if we're in Christ. God loves you so much. Are you willing to give your life to him this morning? If you're somebody that has given your life to him, but you just need prayers to, to get closer and grow stronger, if there's anything that we can do, please make your way to the front now as we stand and sing.